Hello, Dream City. Today I'm coming to you from our beautiful campus in Colorado City, a town wedged right from right between Zion National Park to the north and the Grand Canyon to the south. And we've been here for two days, pulling up carpet, doing drywall work, painting. It's been a great experience. Now, I feel like it's so timely that I'm delivering this message from this campus because this campus really is a miracle. One girl who was really being sexually trafficked by the prophet Warren Jeffs was rescued. She found a new life. She found forgiveness through Jesus Christ and she gifted this place back to us and now we're using it as a place to help young ladies find new life in Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable story. And as I talk to you today, you're going to hear some construction taking place around us, but I think that if you focus in, you're going to get the heart of the message here today. I want to talk to you about the one word you heard in the scripture reading just a moment ago, and it's the word debtor. Now, how many of you have some debts? Come on, raise your hand. We all have some debts. How many of you found out that there's that no one's really offered to pay those debts off for you? You see, there's a simple rule about debt, and it goes this way. You owe, and you pay. If you don't believe this is true, then just go down to your bank and say to your banker, you know this debt that I'm carrying around, it's just way too much for me. It's really hampering my lifestyle and caused me a lot of anxiety, and I don't want to pay it back, okay? See how they respond. No, money lenders are quite touchy about this type of thing. In fact, we have a name for people who lend money and who are determined to get it back. It's kind of an aquatic animal metaphor. They're called loan sharks, not loan bunnies. These aren't pleasant little animals. And these loan sharks have just one rule. And the rule is, you owe, you pay. Now, Jesus said we should pray this way. Forgive us our debts, which means... God, forgive us for the sins that we've done against you. Because all of us have sinned against God. All of us have accumulated a mountain of moral debt that we cannot pay off. But the prayer goes on to say this, as. Everybody say as. Come on, say it real loud. As. As we have also forgiven our debtors. Now this means you, you have also been sinned against. You all have some debtors. You haven't just been the perpetrator of sin, you've been the victim of sin. Somebody that you trusted hurt you, or maligned you, or cheated you, or maybe took advantage of you. Maybe a parent neglected you, maybe a spouse betrayed you. But the truth is, if you are sucking air, you have been the victim of sin. And you have some debtors. You all have some debtors. Now this brings all of us to a very important spiritual crossroads. What are we going to do with our debtors? How motivated are you to extend grace to your debtors? At the first church I pastored back in Dayton, Ohio, there were two very powerful men who didn't get along very well. They wanted to hurt each other, and they did. They just slandered one another. Now, these two men taught the two main Bible studies in the church. And anytime a new person arrived, they'd be extra friendly to them because they were trying to recruit that person into their little group. Because in this church, you had to choose which group you belong to and be loyal to and study this book called the Bible that teaches us how to love our enemies and forgive those who hurt us. And what was so striking to me as a young minister was this, that not only did they not forgive each other, but nobody in the church expected them to. 
that has got used to living with unforgiveness. Now, my goal for this message is that every one of us will leave here today with absolute clarity about what Jesus thinks about this. And I want to really focus in on a single word from the Lord's Prayer today. It says, forgive us our debts as, again, everybody say as, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That little word is one of the most sobering words in the Bible. In fact, no word in English English carries a greater possibility of terror than that little word, the word as in this verse. Because Jesus is making a direct connection between the way you and I treat our debtors and the way God will treat us with regard to our debt. You see, the whole message boils down to this one single word, as. And we all need to be real clear about what Jesus means by this word. So what I want to do today is ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Because there's a whole story in the Bible about this one word. And I want to really break this story down into kind of a three-act play. All right, here's act number one. Peter, our man Peter, you all know Peter, he has a debtor. Somebody has dinged him really good. And he wants to know how Jesus feels about forgiveness. And so in verse 21, this is what he says, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother or shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And as he often does, he decides, I'm going to tell a story about this. And so in verse 23 and 24, he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So this is a story about a king who's owed a very large debt by a servant. And I want to give you some perspective on the size of this man's debt. One talent in Jesus' day was a vast sum of money. In a whole year, all the taxes collected in Judea and Samaria added up to only 600 talents. And this passage says that this servant owed the king 10,000 talents. See, Jesus is using a number here that would be equivalent to us saying, you know, a gazillion dollars. He wants his listeners to know that it'd be virtually impossible for this servant to ever pay back this debt. And I think three things would jump out at Jesus' listeners immediately upon hearing this story. First, how would a servant come into such possession of such riches? Because uh, kings in those days weren't in the habit of giving national-sized debt loans to servants. And the only possible explanation is that the king is a person of staggering generosity. There is no other way to account for this behavior. This king has a vastly generous heart. Second thing that would have jumped out at the listeners. What kind of servant would take so much money from a king, blow the whole wad, and then make no provision for the day of reckoning or paying it back? This is a character of unbelievable folly and selfishness, like a character out of the movie Dumb and Dumber. And then third, I think that the people would understand that the king of lavish generosity is also the king of settled accounts. This is a king who is committed to justice. This is not a story about a a guy getting off a hook because of sloppy bookkeeping by a king. This king is not going to just, you know, on the day of reckoning say, oh, you did the best you could, nice try, I'll just let it go. No, he's a king of settled accounts. Now, what's interesting is this is the only parable 
This parable is really only found in Matthew's gospel. Matthew really liked this parable. Why is that? Well, what was Matthew's occupation? Well, Matthew was a tax collector. He understood all about settling accounts. And I'm sure he had heard every excuse in the world for people not paying their taxes. Well, then it comes time in the story for the king's judgment. Verse 25 says, But as he, this is the servant, was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold, that's into slavery, with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. Now, this was a common practice in Jesus' day. When people couldn't pay debts, they were sold into slavery. And this was a way of motivating the family to step up and and make payments for the debt. But this debt is unpayable, which means that this man and his family will be sold into slavery from one generation to the next as payment because they could never, ever pay it off. End of sentence. Next case, the gavel drops. And by the way, this storyline would not be a surprise to Jesus' listeners because they all knew the rule. They all knew the rule. You owe and you pay. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. This servant now hits the panic button. He's desperate. He knows he's doomed. And he throws up one final last Hail Mary. Look at verse 26. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Notice, I will pay you all. (laughs) Are you kidding me? A gazillion dollars? What a joke. What are the odds that this servant will be able to pay back a gross national product size debt? It's a joke. It's like promising to empty Lake Pleasant with a teaspoon. It's not going to happen. At best, this is an insult to the king's intelligence. Now, here's what I think is happening in this story. Dial in for a moment. This guy is still scamming. He's throwing out one last Hail Mary to try to get off the hook. And all of Jesus' listeners know what's going to happen next because they all know the rule. The rule is you owe, you pay. And they wait for the axe to fall. But then, in the twist of all twists, this king looks at this selfish, desperate fool. And he says in verse 27, the master of that servant was moved with compassion and he released him and he forgave him the debt. Notice the king does two things. First of all, he releases the man. No prison time for him or his family. They're going to be free. But then he goes far beyond that. Secondly, he forgives the debt. This is a mountain of debt. And it doesn't just disappear. What happens to it? Well, somebody's got to pay it. Somebody's got to take the loss. Who pays? The king pays. The king takes the hit. You see, Jesus is introducing a whole new system of debt management. And it goes this way. You owe and I'll pay. This is the economy of grace. This is the king, Jesus, saying, I will pay the unpayable debt. I will take the hit. I will suffer the loss so that you can go free. You owe and I'll pay. And I can just imagine this guy going home and hugging his wife. She's not going to lose her home because of his foolishness. I can imagine him tucking his kids in bed at night. They're not going to spend the rest of their lives in prison. They've got their lives back and they don't have to 
pay all that debt for generations to come. You see, it's all about grace. Now, friends, listen. This is a story about the human race. This is really your story and my story. Jesus says there's a God who is lavishly generous and painstakingly just. And human beings have accumulated a mountain of unpayable moral debt before Him. And you add to it all the time. Anytime you are less than honest. Anytime you are unloving with a five-year-old. Anytime you, you are cutting with your words or maybe you receive a gift from God and you're not grateful for the gift. Anytime you gossip against somebody. Anytime you're sexually impure in your thought or your actions. Anytime you have a judgmental attitude, it's adding to a mountain of moral debt that you can never, ever repay. And every human being is in the same boat. I'm a pastor. It took me about 30 seconds to come up with that little list. Do you know why? Because my wife has done every one of those things. No, no. The, the truth is, that list is my list. That's me. But one day, the king came to me. And he said, Luke, you owe, and I'll pay. And one day, the king came to you, foolish you, rebellious you, with a mountain of moral debt. And he said to you, you owe, and I'll pay. Do you remember the day the king said to you, I want you to live in my economy of grace? And it cost him the best that he had, the life of his son, Jesus. And he paid it without hesitation. Friends, we owe everything to the grace of God. And that leads us to act number two. Let's look at the servant's response. Verse 28. It says, That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid his hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. Now, this time, the servant is the one who's owed a debt. And notice that this fellow servant says precisely the same words to him that he had just said to the king. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Please have patience with me, and I will, will, will pay you all. And Jesus' listeners would expect, Surely this guy will do for the man what the king did for him. And that was their expectation for a few reasons. First of all, the first time around, we're talking about a couple of debtors, right? I mean, they're both servants. In the first act of the story, we're talking about a king and a servant. They weren't peers. The king could have sold the servant at any time and been within his rights. And for a forgiven debtor of a mountain of debt to receive grace from a king and then withhold grace from another debtor was unthinkable to the listeners. Secondly, I think Jesus' listeners expected this man to show grace because this time around the debt was actually payable. Jesus said this debt was a hundred denarii. It's like a couple dollars. It's lunch money. And for this man to receive grace for a mountain of debt and then withhold grace for a teaspoon of debt was unthinkable to the listeners. And then third, I think Jesus' listeners knew this man would show grace because his life had just been saved by grace. He was on the receiving end of the biggest grace operation in history. And they all knew he would just be waiting to overflow grace the first opportunity he had. It would be his way of saying thank you to the king. In a tiny way he could do for this man what the king had done for him. 
And it would be just an honor for him to forgive this man's debt. So imagine the shock of Jesus' listeners when this man, who was just saved by grace, offers no compassion, not a tear of pity. Look at verse 28. He laid his hands on him. He took him by the throat. This is a gesture of violence and contempt, saying, pay me what you owe. You know, this past week I was watching the political scene in our nation, the Kavanaugh hearings. And I was watching as Brett Kavanaugh told the story of how he was being maligned all week long and how all these accusations were being hurled at him. And his little 10-year-old daughter at night said, Daddy, let's just pray for the woman in the story. Let's pray for those who are trying to attack us and malign us. How much better will we all be if we just took the advice of a 10-year-old little girl? But this man in Jesus' story wanted to hurt his debtor. He felt anger and resentment and bitterness. He just want to forgive the debt. He doesn't even give this man a, you know, a chance or time to pay it off. Rather, verse 30 says, he threw him into a prison until he should pay the debt. He violates in every respect the spirit, the tone, the heart, the example of the king who just showed him grace. Now, let me tell you what I think is happening in this story. Let me ask it in a question. Do you think this guy ever truly grasped grace? Do you think he really ever received grace? Because from the way Jesus told the story, it really makes me wonder. I mean, it's a masterfully told story. If you notice, the first servant never asked for grace in the first place. He asked for the works plan. Do you remember what he said to the king? I will pay for everything. I can take care of the debt myself. It was impossible to pay back, but he says, I'll do it myself. He never asked for grace. And when grace was given to him, there was no expression of gratitude. There was no desire to make right whatever he could make right. Remember when Zacchaeus received grace? His response was, I'll give back four times what I cheated anybody. And I'll give half of what I own away to the poor. It was not to earn grace, but to live in it. Now that he received grace, he wanted to live in grace. I think this guy was offered grace, but he never really got it. He just wanted to get off the hook. And there's a world of difference between wanting to be forgiven for something and just wanting to get off the hook. Because when you really want to be forgiven, you actually repent. You want to rebuild a relationship. You want to set right anything you can, not to earn earn grace, but to live in grace. That's part of reconciliation. But I think this guy just wanted to get off the hook. I don't think he was interested in receiving grace at all or living in grace. He was saved by the king's grace, but he wouldn't live in it. He wouldn't offer it to others. Now, as I wrap this up, I want to give two personal applications from this story. Here's the first one. Friends, I'm the servant in this story because I know what it's like to seize someone by the throat. I know what it's like to want to hurt someone. I know what it's like to want to, you know, say hurtful things or withdraw my love, even with those that I love sometimes. I'm like the slave in this story because I'm just a forgiven debtor. 
and the debt between me and God is infinitely greater than what any person's ever done against me in my life. And I'm like the, the servant in the story. And then secondly, I'm like the servant in the story because I'm the biggest debtor that I know. You see, I don't know about your debts because I don't have access to your inner world, but I do have access to my inner world. All my failures as a dad, all my shortcomings as a man, as a husband, as a pastor, all my character defects and the sin that keeps me from being and doing what God wants me to, to be and do. I'm the biggest debtor that I know. And guess what? You're the biggest debtor that you know. And in light of that, to withhold grace from some other poor debtor is just unthinkable. It's unacceptable. And that leads us to the final act of the story. Well, the king finds out what the servant has done and he calls him back into his presence. But this time, it's a totally different story. This time, there are no tears. There are no pleading, no bargains. This time, the king says to the servant, you have badly misunderstood me, my friend. You thought that grace meant that I was a fuzzy-minded incompetent that would kind of just let you get away with abusing whoever you choose. You thought that because you were in with me that you could just be the same old hurtful, self-centered, unforgiving person that you were before. You are badly mistaken, my friend. You got grace, but you never really grasped grace. You were shown forgiveness, but you wouldn't give it away. You were granted mercy, but you wouldn't bestow it. You were showered with love, but you wouldn't extend it. You were offered grace, and you, but you've never really chosen to live in the economy of grace. So I want you to have it your way. Verse 34, his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that he was due to him. And then comes one of the most frightening verses in all the Bible, verse 35. Jesus says, so my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Friends, I don't know how Jesus can make it any clearer. He said that we are to pray, forgive us our debts as, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And you've all got some debtors. Maybe it's a mother or a father. Maybe it's a son or daughter. Maybe it's a brother or sister or a husband or wife. Maybe it's a friend. And I'll ask you now, will you choose grace? Will you choose forgiveness? Now, some of you may ask, well, Luke, what is forgiveness? What are you asking me to do? Well, it's what Jesus is asking you to do. But to forgive someone doesn't mean excusing or tolerating wrongdoing. It doesn't mean that we're putting up with stuff that is wrong or being a doormat for abuse. In fact, it may not even mean reconciliation because there's a difference between forgiving somebody and reconciling with someone. Of course, we should all try our best to reconcile, but if the other party refuses to acknowledge the truth and repent, then you may not be able to reconcile because you cannot build on a relationship unless there's a mutual shared understanding of truth and repentance. No, forgiving them simply means, now catch this, you give up the right to hurt them back and you wish them well before God. I'll say it again. You give up the right to hurt them back 
and you wish them well before God. And you can all do that. We can all do that. It may take some time. You may need to get some help from friends or counselors. But it's the only way, friends. It's the only way to please God. And I want to tell you, the stakes are so high. It affects more than just you. In Philip Yancey's book called What's So Amazing About Grace, he writes these words. He says, I have a friend whose marriage has gone through tumultuous times. One night, George passed the breaking point. He pounded on the table and the floor. I hate you, he screamed at his wife. I won't take it anymore. I've had enough. I won't go on. No, no, no. Well, several months later, my friend woke up in the middle of the night and heard strange sounds coming from the room where his two-year-old son slept. He walked down the hall and stood for a moment outside his son's door, and shivers ran through his flesh. In a soft voice, the two-year-old was repeating the word for word with precise inflection the words between his mother and father. I hate you. I won't take it anymore. No, no, no. George realized in that moment, in some awful way that he had just bequeathed his pain and anger and hatred and unforgiveness to a whole new generation. See, friends, that's the economy of vengeance, and it's wrecking families. It's wrecking our nation. And that's the story of our world today. We see it every single day in Washington, D.C. We see it in the West Bank. We see it in Phoenix. We see it in Scottsdale. We see it in Glendale. We see it in Omaha. We see it in Colorado City. But there's another way. There's a better way. And I think that better way is best told through a great video testimony. Take a look at this. This one story in particular has had a profound impact on me. It's about a woman who did the impossible and it made me ask myself if I could do the same. Renee had four kids. Two of her daughters were twins. Megan was coming home from the beach one night with her best friend when their car was struck by a drunk driver named Eric, a 24-year-old kid. Megan lost her life. Eric killed both girls that were in the car. Renee lost her daughter in an instant. Megan is um, a very joyful child and had a heart of gold, beautiful, loved people, loved her family, um, just a joy of my life. And um, when she was 20 years old, on May 11, 2002, uh, my sister-in-law came to the door to tell me that um, Megan had been in a car accident and she didn't make it. You know, my heart was so broken and I looked at her and said, no, you're kidding, and, you know, still looking for her to tell me that, that she's, this is not really true, that Megan wasn't coming back home. Next thing she knows, she finds herself in a courtroom watching this young man, this 24-year-old man, get sentenced to 22 years in prison. After Renee lost her daughter, she said she found herself in the darkest place she'd ever been. This guy Eric was behind bars, but she said she felt like the prisoner. Why? Because she had all this bitterness and hatred built up towards that young man. And so she reached out and did the impossible. She reached out to Eric in prison and said, I forgive you. The ripple effects of that act of forgiveness are still being felt today. That young man's life was absolutely changed because this woman forgave him. He said, I can't even forgive myself. 
and she forgave me. One by one, all of Renee's family members followed her lead and they reached out and expressed forgiveness to Eric. So much so that now they describe Eric as part of their family, like a son to Renee. The story doesn't stop there though. Renee went to the courts along with her family and she was able to have Eric's sentence cut in half from 22 years to 11 years. He told me that day, the, the day of the hearing, that it didn't matter at this point. He said, you know, if, if the judge does not grant this for me, I want you to know that I am so grateful that you are willing to do this. And um, he said, and I will be okay. He said, I'll, I'll be fine. But I'm just, I, he was blown away by the fact that we were willing to go before the judge and, and you know, plea for him to not have to be there for 22 years. thing on your mind today and it always goes to those who don't deserve it's the opposite of how you feel when the pain they cause is just too real takes everything you have to say the word forgiveness i was more than angry at eric I had so much rage inside of me, and yet the moment that I was able to look Eric in his eyes and tell him that I forgive him, you know, that was a moment that healing began for both of us. It's always anger's own worst enemy. And even when the jury and the judge say you got a right to hold a grudge, it's the whisper in your ear saying, set it free. Forgiveness. A judge and a jury telling you that it's okay to hold a grudge, you know, that's what the world says. It's okay for you to feel that way, which it is. But yet, those feelings, they're inside of you, eating away at you, and, and you don't want to live your life that way. people who are not going to ever have someone say to them, I'm sorry for what I did, or I take responsibility for what I did, and you still have to forgive if you want to heal. It can even set a prisoner free. There is no end to what its power can do. So let it go and be amazed by what you see through eyes of grace. The prisoner that it really frees is you. Forgive me. You're not letting go of what happened. You know, it is wrong. It, it should never have happened. It is not okay. It doesn't mean that you're canceling any of that out. But once you are able to say those words and truly mean it, you know, um, then you do find that you're setting a prisoner free and the prisoner truly is you. Boy, yeah.
I want to thank you for watching this message today. I believe that right now as you're watching this video, God is speaking to your heart. God is speaking to you about a new life, a new future, a new hope. The Bible says that the way we connect with God is we actually call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says, he who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's almost like taking your cell phone out and making a call to somebody that you really love. You're making the call. And I want to encourage you to make the call to God today. And as you do, he promises to forgive your sins, to adopt you into his family, and to give you a hope and a future. So today, if you are ready to call upon the name of the Lord, would you just close your eyes right now and just sincerely say these words to God. Dear Heavenly Father, just say those words. I ask you today to be the leader of my life. I ask you to forgive me for my sins and adopt me into your family. I want to be a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. So I give you my heart today. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says if you prayed that prayer, he heard you and he forgave you. So I want to say to you, welcome to the family of God. Go find a great church to be involved in. If you don't have one, come join us here at Dream City and we'll help you live out the Christian faith and grow closer to Jesus. God bless you all.